0: Hi, I'm Carrie Antholis, creator and host of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. For the last couple of weeks, we've had some issues with our sound mixing. Our music levels have been too high relative to the dialogue in the podcast. We have tried to address each and every one of those issues. And if you remove the downloaded episode from your device and then reload it, you should hear the audio in its proper calibration. We apologize for any inconvenience. There are some areas where the quality of the recorded audio is beyond our control. We have attempted, where possible, to clarify the content of that audio. To those of you who offered constructive commentary about the issue, we appreciate you caring enough to weigh in. And now, without further ado, here's our latest episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. She had decided to follow
1: and be as much a part as she could of the
2: adaptation of her book to the movies. She went out to take L.A. by storm. Julie Baumgold, another writer, was the maid of honor. Lorraine Newman had hosted uh, a wedding shower for Susan. And it was a spectacular event. Bob was there, of course. He walked Susan down the aisle. She also returned to the subject that was near to her heart and always seemed to prove successful. And that was Las Vegas.
1: We developed a routine whenever I'd come to LA. I'd take her out to lunch, Nate nails. We would go there, I would order like enough food for me, for her, for two or three dinners. We would cover the table with food, she would eat a little and we'd pack it all up and take the leftovers back. I had just come back from LA and the phone rings and it's her agent. And he says, okay, look, I got to tell you something. Um, Susan Berman was murdered. In fact, I was so incensed that I found the investigating detective and I I said, look, you know, this is who I am. Here are my credentials. This has nothing to do with the mob. All right. He said, yeah, we figured that out too.
0: Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. As we reported in our bonus episode on Sunday, the jury has begun to hear testimony from witnesses called by the prosecution. Already in the first two weeks of the trial proceedings, tensions have run high in the courtroom with verbal attacks from the attorneys being volleyed from side to side. Later in this episode, we'll discuss the news from the trial. For now, I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder, to discuss our latest segment on the life of Susan Berman, the woman that Robert Durst is charged with murdering. Brittany, what stuck out to you about our last episode two weeks back on Susan Berman's life?
3: First of all, I think it's striking that after losing her parents and going through this horrible depression, she suddenly has this creative surge and seems to find her voice with that piece about not getting laid in San Francisco, which by all accounts was satire.
0: Yeah, according to her friends, she was unqualified to write that one.
3: Right, yeah. I mean, it's no wonder that it launched her career. It was basically clickbait before there was clickbait.
0: Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, actually. It did occur to me that there's almost a Greek tragedy quality to Susan Berman's life. And specifically, in the span of about two months, Susan experienced the incredible high of Robert Durst hosting a book party for her memoir, Easy Street. That was in November of 1981. And then, if the prosecution's case is to be believed, just over a month after that, she helps Bob Durst cover up the murder of his wife, Kathy.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. It's like she made a deal with the devil. You know, as you say, if the prosecution's case is to be believed— Bob does her a favor, throwing her the book party. And then when he calls in a favor, she's got to pay the piper.
0: Well, we'll hear more about that and how everything went downhill for Susan in our third and final installment on Susan Berman's life. Once again, we'll hear from Susan's friends, and sometimes we'll hear from her in her own words, as written in her memoir, Easy Street, The True Story of a Mob Family, and as read by actress Elena Zazanis. That's coming up in this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, right after the break.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today.
0: In part two in our series on the life of Susan Berman, we heard how Susan hit her stride as a journalist and author in New York City. One month after Susan celebrated her success with a book party, Kathy Durst, the wife of Susan's best friend, Robert Durst, went missing. Los Angeles prosecutors have put forward evidence that Susan told friends at the time and in later years that Robert Durst was responsible for the disappearance and that she had impersonated Kathy in a phone call to cover Durst's tracks.
2: Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy And I said, no, he didn't. And she said, yes, he did. And we argued about that. And she said, we love both of them. Kathy's gone. We love Bob. We need to protect him. Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me.
0: I'm Carrie Antholis. And in this special episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, we complete our series about the life of Susan Berman, the woman whom Robert Durst is accused of killing. In it, we draw from interviews, evidence, trial recordings, and passages from Susan's memoir, which are read by actress Elena Zizanis. After the success of her book, Susan was ready to take her career to the next level. So she set her sights on Hollywood and in 1983 moved to Los Angeles. Here's her friend, James Grady.
1: She had decided to follow and be as much a part as she could of the adaptation of her book to the movies. She went out to take LA by storm, I think. She I think she really thought she was she, this was the this was the ride. And she would talk about, well, you I've got a meeting next week with with you know this producer at Paramount and She had that enthusiasm that a lot of people have when they come to Hollywood. And they don't understand that that same producer has saw 23 other people before
0: lunch. Reporter Charlie Bagley learned about Susan's life in L.A. as part of his coverage of Robert Durst for The New York Times.
2: Susan, by now, is back in L.A. trying to start her career as a screenwriter She's taking meetings with studios and going over to the Writers Guild and, you know, keeping in touch with everyone. And that's where she met Mr. Mr. Margulies.
0: To be clear, the man used Mr. as his first name, as in Mr. Mr. Margulies. He was much younger than Susan.
2: I have no idea where Mr. comes from, but that, that was his first name. She met him online at the Writers Guild.
0: As in waiting online. This was pre-internet.
2: And they struck up a quick friendship, which turned romantic. As the case may be, she had a connection with Mr. And that is that Mr.'s father had worked for her father in Las Vegas.
0: Things moved quickly, and before long, they were planning a June wedding. It was 1984, and Susan was 39 years old.
2: And this is something that Susan had always wanted. And... So she picked, you know, a a very prominent place, Hotel Bel-Air, and she wanted this to be a real Hollywood event. So not only were there ice sculptures, but, you know, people were asked to wear white yarmulkes, and she invited a who's who. In fact, Robert Evans gave a toast, the famous producer, and he said at this event, that Susan was the most seductive woman he ever met. And he mentioned how lucky Mr. would be. This was huge. Uh, Julie Baumgold, another writer, was the maid of honor. Lorraine Newman had hosted uh, a wedding shower for Susan at her house in Los Angeles. And so it was a spectacular event. Bob was there, of course. He walked Susan down the aisle uh, at this very festive event. He he didn't endear himself to some of Susan's friends. He was kind of rude. He didn't like the idea of shuttling some of Susan's friends from the airport to the hotel. But nevertheless, he did it.
0: Unfortunately, after a couple months, there was trouble in the marriage.
2: It turns out, unbeknown originally to Susan, that he was a drug addict. Mister was shooting up and he was also, by her account, by what she told her friends, he was also violent. And so, after about seven months, they separated and, and Susan went into a tailspin. This really struck her to her core. She was hoping, however, that, that they would have a rapprochement. And, and she was hoping for that when, when Mr. Margulies died of an overdose.
0: It was a huge blow.
2: This is a woman that worked her ass off time. And again, every day she could write from the moment she got up into the late hours. And now she couldn't even get out of bed. Uh, When she visited New York during this period, I mean, friends had to, uh, somebody had to stay with her all the time. She was just so distraught.
0: Gradually, she pulled herself together, writing scripts with Paul Kaufman, a financial advisor who also wanted to break into Hollywood. Their paths had crossed years earlier as students at the Chadwick School.
2: I was reintroduced by a mutual friend, and um, we um, got involved with writing scripts and, you know, that area of the industry, since she was a writer, I was also writing at that time. And that's what brought us together. We had a lot of mutuality, um, mutual friends, mutual background. We were both living in Brentwood at the time, a few blocks away from each other. And so, you know, and I was very taken with her just as a a talent and as a wit and as a lovely, charming person that she was. And then it became, you know, it really became something more.
0: Susan bought a house in Brentwood and Kaufman moved in, along with his son, Sarab and daughter, Mella. Susan happily took on a maternal role. It was kind of the first time, Mellis said, that I had a really present parent. In the early 1990s, Susan and Kaufman began writing a Broadway musical. It was a quixotic endeavor based on the Dreyfus Affair, the late 19th century French political scandal with anti-Semitic overtones. By the time the project collapsed from lack of interest, Susan had drained her trust fund and lost her house to the bank. Kaufman left her. After the breakup and the loss of her house, Susan moved to a rental on Benedict Canyon Drive. The kids went with her. Sarah went away to school but would visit frequently, and Mella moved into Susan's back bedroom. The house was a 1930s cedar shaped bungalow backing up to the hillside and facing the winding two-lane road. It was modest but had a Beverly Hills zip code, which was important to Susan's image. Susan's next-door neighbor, Catherine Shaw Cutter, described the neighborhood like this.
4: Well, it's, it's quite secluded, I would say, because it's really just the street there, and there are no streets that go up mu- very much. So um, during rush hour, it's pretty trafficy, but when it, the traffic's quiet, like on the weekends or at night, it's incredibly quiet.
0: The relative isolation made Catherine feel secure.
4: It's just one road. There's only one way out in each direction. Um, and you know if you were if someone were to like rob a house or something they can't really get away so um i always felt extremely safe there
0: eventually mella left for school too but would return to the back bedroom when she was on break both sarah and mella were all acquainted with susan's three dogs lulu romeo and golda who was named after israeli prime minister golda Mayer. Wire-haired fox terriers, they were medium-sized and, according to Mella, high-strung and demanding. They barked frantically whenever someone came to the door. Mella described how Susan would leave their leashes on, making it easier to separate them if they began barking, and would lead them into separate rooms and close the doors when guests arrived. Once settled, she would let them out. Catherine, who was also a writer working from home, had a genial relationship with Susan, and also plenty of time to observe Susan interacting with her dogs.
4: Oh, she doted on them. Well, do they, she just, you know, just, oh, no matter what she was doing, half of her attention was always on the dogs, and she doted on them, and you know, you could just hear it in her voice. she just be like, would she call him her baby, you know, little baby, don't, little oh, baby, <coughs> make me sad, leave your mama alone, just, just
0: like a mother hen, okay. sweet. With the dogs' company, Susan put in long days writing in The Little Bungalow. She wrote two romantic mysteries, Fly Away Home in 1996, and The Spider Web in 1997. According to Charlie Bagley, neither did very well.
2: But she also returned to the subject that was near to her heart and always seemed to prove successful, and that was Las Vegas. So she got involved in a uh, four-hour A&E documentary called Las Vegas, and she wrote a companion book, Lady Las Vegas, the inside story behind the neon oasis, uh, which it, it was an expansion of some of the material that was in Easy Street, but... It was also some new stuff in there but by the end of the 90s she had sort of tapped out and she always was writing she was always pitching stories pitching screenplays but she was not getting contracts and she was having a hard time making ends meet she didn't always pay her rent Uh, When her car broke down half the time, she didn't have the money to get it out of the shop. So Susan was on the skids.
0: James Grady, who had achieved his own success when his novel was adapted into the Robert Redford film, Three Days of the Condor, remembers Susan's financial dry spell.
1: We stayed friends during her Hollywood period, when she was out there. And that house was a little bit like her apartment. It had this gigantic black and white photo of her dad and her mom that was probably taken from one of the stills in her book on the mantle. There were a few other books. She had these yippie dogs that she loved um, and no food. And we developed a routine. Whenever I'd come to LA, I'd take her out to lunch and there was a Jewish delicatessen, Nate Nails. We would go there. I would order like enough food for me, for her, for two or three dinners. We would cover the table with food. She would eat a little and we'd pack it all up and take the leftovers back. And I'd open her refrigerator and there was nothing in it.
0: The most promising project seemed to be the show about a family run off strip casino she was developing with Carol Mendelssohn.
1: I think she thought this last deal when she was going to do a Vegas television series. I think that was her new hope.
5: We must have turned the pilot in before Christmas. You get notes. We did, I think, one or two passes of notes in January. And then it was, the pickups were very late that year from CBS. And it was making me crazy. It was literally end of January, at least. And so I couldn't take it anymore. So I went to Vegas for the weekend. And that's, and I was standing like at the Monte Carlo in the casino when I got the call.
0: The show was not picked up. We were both really disappointed because
5: we enjoyed working together. But she handled it like a pro.
0: While all around her, her old friends were enjoying professional success, Susan was living hand to mouth. Yet she never showed any signs of jealousy, according to Lorraine Newman. To the contrary, she said that despite her own struggles, Susan always remained 1,000% loyal.
5: Susan did talk about having money problems sometimes when we were having lunch. Um, and she, and I, the day I drove her home, she said, why don't you come in? I said, okay. And this place was a mess. And I lent her a blanket. I had this blanket from Mexico that was very heavy wool. And Susan said her heat wasn't working. Could I lend her a blanket? And I lent her a blanket, and so she was having trouble with the heat. It was like a sense that that she had friends that were helping her out, but she never mentioned them by name.
0: Someone was helping Susan out. Her old friend Bobby Durst. The two had fallen out of touch in 1994 when Durst's father bypassed him and chose his younger brother, Douglas, to run the family real estate empire. According to their mutual friend, Nick Chaven, Durst withdrew in embarrassment. But in early 1999, Susan reached out. In the course of the following year, Durst gave her two separate checks for $25,000 each.
1: I don't know how she was managing to live. I always wondered if, uh, if Durst wasn't Still sending her money. Uh, I think this was a, uh, th- this was one of the things that was preying on her mind.
0: Miriam Barnes, Susan's old neighbor from New York, had also moved to Los Angeles, and the two were in close touch. She
6: was calling me a lot, um, and Sue, everybody knew Susan was broke. I didn't have any money to give her. I know that she was giving some money, but. But she she had been broke for quite a long time, and all I could do for her was, if I was going to the supermarket, to ask her, you know, what I could pick up for her, and she would come to my house and, and say, "Do you have any old bags, like pocketbooks or something that you know I might like that I could use?" But um, she was calling me and talking about coming to New York and first the conversation was I'm going because I'm, I'm going to meet this guy and like a, a, a blind date or, or something that I've been talking to or something and in my head I was going Susan you don't have a pot to pee in. All of a sudden, the conversations switched to me going to New York because they want questioning about
0: Kathy. Completely broke and out of lifelines, Susan was hinting to people that she was going to talk to police about Kathy Durst's 1982 disappearance. One of those people was Durst himself, whose secrets Susan had been keeping for decades, and whose checks she'd been cashing since their recent reunion. Susan told me that she'd been contacted by Los Angeles detectives and um, they want to come talk to me. Durst had no way of knowing at the time, but Susan had lied. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin shared this uncomfortable fact with a stunned Durst in an interrogation room after his 2015 arrest in New Orleans. I'm going to tell you something.
2: That wasn't true. They
0: had not contacted her i think that susan was trying to subtly squeeze you for money um by the way for 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 what it's worth bob because i know you cared about her i don't think susan ever would have said anything as 2000 was winding down susan still seemed hopeful she suggested to some that there was interest in the las vegas series from other networks She had at least three invitations for holiday gatherings, and Bobby might visit L.A., she told friends. She wasn't sure exactly when. On Friday, December 22nd, Susan got together with Richard Markey. The two had worked together writing scripts on spec for the sitcoms Married with Children and Frasier, with no luck. They had dinner at around 6 at Santa Monica's Broadway Deli, then walked across the bustling 3rd Street Promenade to see the movie Best in Show
2: which they both thoroughly enjoyed, this sort of offbeat humor there. And then Susan dropped him off, Richard Markey, at about 10.30 at his house. So when Susan got home that night from the movies, she changed into sweatpants and a t-shirt and prepared to go to bed. It was closing in on midnight and there was a sound at the door. Now, Susan was the kind of person that didn't answer the door to strangers. And she wasn't very likely to open the door even to her friends. She was very guarded at at that point and nervous. But what we know, because the back door was unlocked and open, the front door was unlocked, that whoever came to the door that night was, we think, someone she knew because she let him in and that was just not her M.O. Susan turned her back to her visitor. They walked through the house and the visitor came up behind her with a nine millimeter pistol very close to the back of her head and pulled the trigger. Susan dropped to the ground.
3: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
4: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month.
3: Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. LAPD,
4: operator 348. Yes, hi. Um, I live in Benedict Canyon, and um, my next-door neighbor, one of our other neighbors... Um, found her dog on the street yesterday.
6: Uh-huh. and um,
4: Was well, it dead? Or? Oh, no, 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 no. We have her. Oh. The problem is um, they gave us the dog and we went over next door to see if Susan was home and her car is in the driveway. She's not answering her door. There are packages on her doorstep. She's not answering her phone. Her back door is wide open. So I don't okay. know what's going on.
0: Catherine gives the dispatcher her address.
4: She lives by herself and. I hate
0: to think. Police officers found Berman lying flat on her back on the floor of the back bedroom, Mela's room, where Susan took the dogs when someone came to the door. There was no sign of forced entry. Her purse was on the kitchen table with credit cards and a small amount of cash inside. Bloody paw prints punctuated the scene. James Grady had just returned home when he got the news.
1: Yeah, it was, I had just come back from L.A., and I'm sitting there, and the phone rings, and it's her agent. And he call. He says, "Okay, look, I got to tell you something. Um, Susan Berman was murdered. And I, the only thing I could think of, I thought, I thought she got mugged. She got what? No, she was killed in her in her bungalow. You know that place? I said, Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I was just, I was just there, and." I, I knew immediately what it wasn't, which was it had nothing to do with the mob. I mean, that was, in fact, I was so incensed about this. And I wanted to make sure the cops got um, on the right track that I found the investigating uh, detective uh, or one of them. And I, I said, look, you know, this is who I am. This is where I am. This is, here are my credentials. This has nothing to do with the mob. All right. I don't know. I know that you're going to get, get, get told that, but it's it had nothing to do with the mob. She says,
0: yeah, we figured that out, too. Susan's murder had nothing to do with the mob, but James Grady still felt that Susan's unconventional childhood contributed to her violent end.
1: Susan, Susan was one of these, these strangely layered people. I, I think that that Susan was like a lost girl. I think she got lost really early and I think I think she she tried to hang on to being a lost girl as long as she could. And I think that might have cost her her life with Bobby you know with Bobby Durst because um, anybody. From what we know now about him, anybody who had spent as much time and as many years around him as she did should have known this man was a dangerous and unpredictable psychopath.
0: Maybe Susan didn't see her friend Bobby in the same way, or maybe she did and loved him nonetheless. In Easy Street, Susan suggests that her worldview left room for both.
5: Death and love seem linked forever in my fantasies, and the Kadesh will ring always in my ears.
0: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts.
2: Here's a show that we recommend.
1: wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators
5: launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.
0: Coming up on future episodes, we'll begin a deep dive into areas of Robert Durst's life that even those who've been following this case avidly may not know. And we will hear much of this in Durst's own words by mining his writings, interviews he's given, and his testimony in his Galveston trial for the murder of Morris Black. But before we close out today's episode, I'd like to discuss some of the events we witnessed during the last week of the trial. In our bonus episode earlier this week, we covered the highlights from the first two weeks, so be sure to check that out if you missed it. And now, to discuss all of these events, I'd like to bring back Brittany and welcome Charles Bagley, who is covering the Durst trial for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Brittany, Charlie, thanks for joining
2: me. Thanks for
3: having me. Great to be here.
0: First off, Charlie, we just finished presenting our three-part series about the life of Durst's alleged victim, Susan Berman. And a lot of the material in there was reported by you in your four-part series of articles, Susan Berman's Greatest Unfinished Story, which you wrote for CrimeStory.com. What's different in your mind about the Susan that you have come to know from the image that the lawyers in the Durst trial are painting of her?
2: Well, I wanted to make Susan Berman a flesh and blood person. You know, we, we heard that from the defense, they, they think of her as a fabulous, a liar. And, and then from the prosecution, Susan is both victim and an accomplice who helped Bob Durst cover up the murder of his first wife. But Susan was a very complex person who, in many ways, is a tragic figure. As much as she idolized her father and her life in Las Vegas as a child, the ever-present anxiety became part of her life. It manifested itself in, in her various phobias and in her attempt to find a family. Uh, whether it was with the children of her partner, Kaufman, or with Bob Durst, or with Mr. Mr. I think she was searching for something that would hold her down, but otherwise she, she was a tragic figure.
0: Yeah, one thing that I was thinking about, and I was talking to Brittany about earlier, was that she had this book party in late 1981, and within a few months of Bob Durst hosting this book party, she found herself allegedly becoming his accomplice. It's almost like a Greek tragedy.
2: It is.
0: Last time, we talked about DeGuerin's strategy of painting Kathy as a cocaine addict to explain her difficulties in school. And last week, the prosecution team brought a series of doctors to the stand and in their cross-examination of those doctors, the defense, and Dick DeGarren specifically, tried to corroborate his drug use theory by asking them whether Kathy's purported illness, as reflected in the call that was made to Dr. Cooperman, could have been the result of a cocaine hangover, as he coined it. How do you think this played with the jury, Charlie?
2: Well, I hesitate to say exactly how the jury thought, but I think it was a colossal bust because you had all these people, they were doctors, now retired. That gives us an idea of just how long this is going on. They met Kathy when they were students in their 20s, and now they're retiring as doctors. But they knew Kathy. They thought of her as a good student, somebody you wanted to sit next to in case you needed her notes. They thought she was both charming and intelligent. And here the defense lawyer, Dick DeGarren, keeps asking them about cocaine and about whether that was hurting her performance in school. And they're scratching their heads because Kathy had told them, in some cases, that she was very afraid of her husband, who had a violent streak. And I think these are two images that just cannot be explained away.
0: And on top of that, DeGuerin said to the ER doctor who treated Kathy for a black eye, you've seen worse, right? Brittany, what was your reaction when that happened?
3: It was shocking. I, You know, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I mean, aside from being completely out of touch, I, I can't imagine how he thinks that helps his case. Like, well, see, he could have killed her and he didn't, you know. If I've learned anything from 22 seasons of Law & Order SVU, it's that domestic violence tends to escalate, and presumably the jury is just familiar with that.
0: Now, in spite of the assertion by the defense team that the phone call to Dr. Cooperman came from Kathy and not Susan Berman, the prosecution was able to get the defense to agree to a stipulation, which is basically both sides acknowledging that a specified statement is a legal fact. And that stipulation was that 10 additional doctors would testify in answer to the same set of questions that it was absurd to think that a medical student would call in sick to the dean of the college instead of to the hospital where the student was meant to work a rotation. Charlie, what did you think of this stipulation?
2: Well, I was kind of stunned. I mean, it comes after they've examined eight doctors who were all saying the same thing. And, and all of a sudden, they now are conceding that these 10 doctors will will say the same, that, that uh, it's highly unlikely that Kathy would have called the dean. You don't want him to know that you missed a class. You would call the service. And in fact, in some of the documents that were brought into the courtroom it showed that in other classes she had called her service or or the supervisor of various clinics to tell them she was unable to make a specific class or instruction in a way it would seem the stipulation is a way of acknowledging that the whole week was a bit of a bust
0: well at least it will save some time, possibly a whole week, according to Judge Wyndham.
3: Yeah, that was one of my favorite moments from last week. Judge Wyndham thanks Habib Balian because he was the one reading the stipulation. And then John Lewin, in a cheeky way, asks for credit as well. And then David Chesnoff kind of makes fun of him for speaking up. And then Judge Windham is like, everybody gets a gold star. <laughs> it's It's just very funny how the lawyers swing between these really harsh personal attacks and then laying on the charm for the jury and kind of kissing up to the judge like he's their teacher.
0: Yeah, there is this weird disconnect between the tension and intensity of these lawyers dislike for one another and their need to kind of make a show of amicability for the judge. Well, Charlie Bagley, Brittany Bookbinder, thank you again for joining me this week.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you.
0: And- Whether it's tension between the lawyers or levity by Judge Windham, we'll continue to bring you the latest trial updates in our regular weekly episodes and in special bonus episodes of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Automatically receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. The episode was written by Karen Ann Coburn with contributions from Charles Bagley and Brittany Bookbinder. Passages from Susan Berman's writings were read by Elena Zizanis. Post-production and editing were handled by Jodie O'Keefe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.